Lord, we just thank you that we can uh, gather in the name of Jesus, our Savior. We thank you, Lord, this morning for your word. We thank you, God, that um, we could spend time with you and sit at your feet. And we pray, God, just that as we spend time in your word, what we would experience is not wise and persuasive human words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power in our hearts and in our lives, Lord. And that can't be manufactured by human energy or human ingenuity or effort. Lord, it's a work of your spirit. And so, God, we thank you for your word this morning. Your words are spirit and they are truth. And, Lord, um, we look to hear from you. We acknowledge you, Jesus, and your word is the authority in our lives. And pray, God, that you would speak to us in your name. Amen. Sweet, what I thought I'd do this morning is go to John chapter 20 because, well, I called this message uh, eight days later uh, because what happens in this story is eight days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I just enjoyed uh, Easter last week. Did you guys? It was sweet. It was a sweet time. And, uh, and so I w- was thinking about that and John chapter 20 recounts for us some of the things that took place. Uh, eight days later, well, a, li- a little bit of what directly happened that day that Jesus uh, was risen from the dead. We'll look at that. And then specifically what happened eight days later. And um, we're going to pick it up in verse 19 this morning of John chapter 20. It was the evening of the same day that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Already rumors were swirling around the city of Jerusalem uh, that his disciples had stolen the body, of course. And in fear, the disciples had actually gone into hiding. They had locked themselves away. The scripture tells us that that even the disciples did not believe the first reports of the resurrection. Thomas had personally, well, we're going to read this about him this morning, demanded proof. But when you read the gospel accounts and the resurrection accounts is this, is that what that, that once everyone is confronted with the reality of the resurrection, their lives get transformed. It's awesome. And this is the wonderful reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why uh, the, the season of Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday and the celebrations of Passover are so meaningful for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Because when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, your life gets transformed. And we get to encounter the same Lord, the same risen Lord that those disciples encountered all those years ago. And so on the evening of the first day, before the reality of the resurrection had set into the hearts of these men, we read this in verse 19 of John chapter 20. Check it out. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So what a great greeting from Jesus. They're locked away. He he appears in their midst and says, peace be with you. Now the text tells us that the disciples were afraid and they had reason to fear. They weren't afraid of God. They were afraid of people. They were afraid of the Jews because of the cross. That's what the text tells us that they had already murdered Jesus, that they feared how far those who had opposed Jesus would just take uh, what had happened and and take action to silence those who followed Jesus. Because the enemies of the cross wanted to silence followers of Jesus. Still the case today. And the best way to silence a man or a woman who follows Jesus is to do this. 
to put the fear of human beings in them, to put in their hearts the fear of people. And the disciples were afraid of people. It's interesting, you read this. It doesn't tell us that they're afraid of God. They're afraid of people. They were afraid of the cross. They were afraid of the empty tomb because it was empty and they were expecting to be charged with the crime of robbing the grave, stealing the body of Jesus. So they locked themselves away. They locked themselves away to keep the Jews out. But as we read, they couldn't keep Jesus out. And the one thing you can never do in your life is this, to shut Jesus out. Aren't you glad about that? I mean, you can lock yourself away from people, but you will never lock yourself away from Jesus Christ. The resurrected Jesus is not hindered by physical barriers. He's not hindered by locks. No man can uh, hide from Jesus. And the truth is this. You might fear people, but you don't need to fear Jesus. You might fear people, but you don't need to be afraid of Jesus because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and the first greeting that he gives to those to whom he reveals himself is this, the risen Lord, peace. Peace to you. Shalom. It means safety, security. It means harmony. Peace is everything you would wish for between yourselves and God and that you would wish for with other human beings. And peace, when the Bible talks about peace, it's, it's so much more than the shallow definition of the world's version of peace. It's the peace of God, and it's peace with God. It's peace, the Bible says, that surpasses understanding. It's a peace that is greater than any situation. It is a peace that overwhelms the worries and the anxieties of the heart. It is a peace that utterly overcomes the fearful Runaway thoughts that take hold of our hearts and minds. It's the peace of God. It's peace with God. And only Jesus can give that peace. Now, Jesus said, it says this in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I love this because the peace of Christ is not just a, a feeling if, if the peace of Jesus was just a feeling, then when you begin to look at the facts of your life, maybe the trouble you face, the situation that's out of control, the sickness you face, the people you fear, the situation in the world, all this COVID stuff, if the peace of Christ was just a feeling, then it would flee when trouble comes. But aren't you thankful that the peace of Christ, when it gets in your heart, it does not flee in the face of trouble? It's a peace from Jesus that is based on facts. So it does not flee in the face of trouble. And so to show the disciples uh, this peace was based on facts, Jesus did this. He showed them his hands and he showed them his side that had been pierced by that spear. See, peace for the human heart comes from Jesus. It's based on the fact that Jesus conquered sin. Jesus conquered death. Jesus conquered the devil. Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and death could not hold him. No situation, no person, no sickness, no disease, no devil can stop the peace of Jesus Christ when you put your faith in him. Peace be with you, he says to them. Boys, <laughs> you locked away here. Here I am. Peace to you. 
Look at my hands. Check out these wounds. Look at this. The devil tried. Check this out. Look at my feet. Death tried its best, but guess what, guys? I am the resurrection and the life. And they saw Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He had died. He was risen from the dead, and there was no mistake. He had the nail holes in his hands to prove it. He had the the spear wound in his side to prove it. There were nail holes in his feet. It was really him. He had died. He had been raised to life that they may have peace. You know, it's awesome that one day we're going to see Jesus and we are going to lay our own eyes on those nail marks, on that mark in his side. And so Jesus says to these men, peace be with you. But, there, but here's the thing about peace, peace with God and the peace of God. It wasn't just for those men locked in that room, amen? Peace wasn't just for them. Jesus was going to send them out to announce peace for other people. That others could have the experience of peace that they had and an experience with Jesus that they had. The peace of God and peace with God. Look at verse 21 and see what Jesus said to them. He said this. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Of course, in the Bible, when something's repeated two times, it's big emphasis from the Lord. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So first Jesus says to them this. He says, as the Father has sent me, now I send you. In other words, guys, the the time for hiding behind locked doors is over. It's finished. The time for hiding your lamp under a bowl For hiding your light is over. Lift off the cover. Shine your light. Open the door wide. Unlock it and go out. Get involved. Tell others about the peace that you have. Be bold. Be not afraid. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. I'm sending you out into the world, Jesus said, just as the Father sent me. So I send you. Jesus was sent into this world. And we know his story. He was rejected. He was hurt, but he was also raised to life. He was rejected, but he was also received. He was hurt, but he also saved. Jesus was a missionary. He came preaching good news to seek and to save the lost. And now Jesus sends out his disciples. And how could these men take on this role? Or better yet, how can we do this? How can we be these kind of disciples? Well, the thing, the, the thing Jesus said to them was this, I am sending you. But the second thing he did was this. He said, receive the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them. He told them, you must receive the Spirit. This is how Jesus began his ministry. We know this. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove from heaven, saying, this is, the Father spoke from heaven, saying, this is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Receive him. Receive his ministry. Receive his message. And Jesus, just as Jesus received power from the Holy Spirit and began to preach and to do mighty works, so we too need to receive the Holy Spirit to continue the pattern and the ministry of Christ Jesus. You know, I think about that, like 
How do you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind? And how do you love your neighbor as yourself without the power of the Spirit? Can't happen. How could we do the works of the Father like Jesus did without the anointing of the Holy Spirit? So Jesus breathed on them. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. And right at that moment, those men were born again. That's what I believe happened right there. They were regenerated right there. He breathed. I love that picture of the Spirit, the breath of God. Right from the book of Genesis, the Holy Spirit is introduced to us as it revealed to us as the breath of God, the spirit of God, the wind of the Lord, the, the pneuma, the ruach. And breath, it can't be seen. You can't, you can't touch your breath. We use that statement like catch your breath. You can't catch your breath. You can't grasp your breath with your hand, but you can feel it. You can experience the life that comes from breath. At a baby's birth, you can see when a baby takes its first breath. You know, if you've ever been in a room with someone, when their uh, life is departing from their body, you watch their breathing and you, and you see breath, you hear breath depart. You can't catch breath, but you can see it, experience its presence, its effect. It's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going, but you can see its presence in the trees and the way it moves the leaves. You can feel it like wind on on your skin, breath is life. And Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I'll breathe, you receive. I want to breathe into you the same presence and power that will allow you to do the Father's will, to perform his will. And then Jesus said this to them in verse 23. He said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is incredible when I read this. They were to go forth into the world to announce the good news of Jesus and salvation, that if sinners would repent of of sin and, and believe on the Lord Jesus, their sins would be forgiven. They could have peace with God and the peace of God. And just like them, just like those disciples, you and I are to announce the kingdom of God. To announce that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That Jesus has purchased men's redemption. That Jesus has paid the ransom for sin. That if you believe in Jesus Christ, I can declare to you with total clearness and authority from God that there is forgiveness of sins if you'll put your faith in Jesus. We declare that there is forgiveness in Jesus. And I love this. I can't provide it for you. But guess what? I know the one who can. He's the crucified and risen Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. His name is Jesus. Good news. Jesus made a way. In Jesus, you can be forgiven from the sin that condemns you. And you can have life in his name, eternal life. I was thinking about it. The church is like a forgiveness dispensary. (laughs) You know, we got other dispensaries in our community. They dispense all sorts of things in this community, you know. The the world's building safe injection sites. But you know what we dispense? The forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We say there's hope in Jesus. There's forgiveness of sin and shame. And the church and the people of God is the place where we can declare 
the forgiveness that is in Christ. Now, verse 24, it says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, it's interesting. You know, I would say this. It's always good to be with God's people when they gather. Amen? Thomas wasn't there. And you never know what you're going to miss out when you're not there. So, you know, actually, we don't know where he was. Others were hiding, but Thomas wasn't locked away. Uh, And it's kind of funny, you know, we call Thomas so often doubting Thomas. I like to point this out about Thomas. I think he gets a raw deal there. It's a bum deal. Uh, Thomas was bold. He was loyal. I don't think calling him doubting Thomas is a a fair analogy, of a description of who he is. Thomas, Thomas took... Jesus' words literally. He was the one who said, hey, are we going to Jerusalem? Then, okay, good, let's go. We'll die with you when you get there. Okay? He was a loyal man. But somehow he missed the blessing of meeting with Jesus that night that he appeared. The day that Jesus had been risen from the dead, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus breathed on those disciples. So verse 25 says this about about this situation. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the hand, see that in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, again, thinking about Thomas, there's some things you have to appreciate about this guy rather than criticize. He's honest, it's a good quality to be an honest person to be an honest man. He wasn't playing religious games. He said, I don't believe. I like that about Thomas. It's like, let's not pretend, Thomas. He just says it truly how he's feeling. He's honest. And he wanted evidence. I actually think that's pretty reasonable, don't you, to want evidence? Following Jesus is not like irrational. Following Jesus is not like religious mysticism and pagan belief. That's vague and undefined. No, Jesus, following Jesus, is a rational decision of faith. And it's logical and it's sensible. And Thomas knew the realities of crucifixion. He knew the realities of death. Rising from the dead to him was, I don't know, rationally, intellectually impossible. So he said, I want evidence. Thomas was also discerning. I mean, he knew that the resurrection was vital to faith. So Jesus is alive or he's not. And so it's nothing in between. I need to know. And he was sincere about it. He said, I I won't believe unless this happens, dot, dot, dot. The original language actually expresses this in in a double negative, that Thomas said, unless this happens, I will not, I will not believe. He's like super emphasizing this. And it's funny, though, even though he said that, he was still looking for evidence. Now, check out verse 26. Eight days later. That's why I called this message eight days later, because it's eight days after Resurrection Sunday. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Eight days later, again, the disciples are behind locked doors. 
And again, Jesus comes and stands among them. And I, I like here that this time it doesn't tell us that, G, that, the, that these disciples were behind locked doors because they were afraid. This time the emphasis is on the locked doors to tell us, wow, this is miraculous. Jesus came in and stood amongst them and said again, peace be with you. And then Jesus turned to Thomas. He didn't rebuke Thomas. Didn't rebuke him for his doubt. We talked about this last week with Peter. Thomas wasn't rebuked for his doubt. Rather, Thomas was commanded, believe Thomas. Stop disbelieving and believe. And you know, I would say this to you. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I was thinking about it more. You know, you may be a doubter. Maybe you're joining us online this morning. I was, I was a little bit rattled by what happened with the announcements there, so I forgot to greet everybody online, so welcome. Look at you may be a doubter. You may doubt the resurrection. You may doubt that your sins are forgiven. You might doubt their salvation in the name of Jesus. But listen, this is very important that you catch this. Jesus does not rebuke doubt. Jesus won't rebuke you for doubting. What he will do is he will command you to believe. And there's a difference between, you know, doubt and unbelief. What Jesus says here is, be not faithless, but believe, Thomas. And doubt is often rooted in an intellectual problem. We want to believe. We want to. Thomas, I think, wanted to believe, but his faith was overwhelmed by intellectual problems and questions. Like, you can, you can have doubt that you have eternal life. You ever experienced that? I think every Christian questions that at times. Is that real? You can have doubt that God answers prayer. You can have doubt that you'll have victory over some area of temptation. You can have doubts about all sorts of things in your relationship with Jesus, but, but doubt is when faith is overwhelmed by problems and questions. And because doubt is intellectual, doubt can be met with the word of God. By renewal of your mind. By your mind being transformed by the word. So doubt is an intellectual problem. When you have doubts, you need to look to the promises of God and take hold of the promises of God. Now, unbelief is different. Doubt and unbelief are different. Sorry, it's good screams back there. Unbelief is a heart issue. Unbelief is a moral problem. Unbelief is simply refusal to believe. And doubt and unbelief are different. I would say this, unbelief is a, is a heart issue. And, and Thomas, the text tells us this, Thomas would not believe. He declared that about himself. I will not believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now you could question, did Thomas have an intellectual problem with the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus? Or did he have a heart problem with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I would say, it was a heart problem. It wasn't an intellectual issue. It was a moral issue. Refusal to believe. His issue is not having doubts with regards to the resurrection. His issue was refusal to believe unless it was on his terms. That's a moral problem. Not an intellectual problem. It's stubborn refusal to believe. 
You know, some people, I think this is a lot of people, don't have intellectual problems with the gospel of Jesus. They're just stubborn. They just have stubborn, unbelieving hearts. That's what Thomas had. He said, if I, if I see the nail marks in his hands, if I put my finger in those marks, and unless I put my hand in his side, unless those things happen, I, I will not, I will not believe. Unless I see. You know, I always read that and think it's so interesting because people say that to us, don't they, about Jesus. They say, you know, if, if only I could see. If God would just reveal himself, if Jesus would just show himself to me, then I would believe. And it, and it sounds logical on one level, but here's what I would tell you. That is the evidence of a heart that is refusing to believe. It's a stubborn heart. Rather than, than the evidence of a searching mind. So you can have a searching mind or you can have a stubborn heart. That's why Jesus said you have to have a heart like a child enter into the kingdom of God. When someone says, I will not believe unless, they have already admitted, admitted they don't believe. And they're stating that they define the terms of what the evidence will be. They define the terms of what the evidence is that constitutes their reason to believe. When someone says, I will not believe unless, they're trusting in their own I don't know, scientific method with regards to the gospel and determining faith. Not that they don't have faith, I guess. It's just that they have put uh, faith in what they have determined is the necessary evidence. It's like you're setting the parameters. The Bible tells us this in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Bible says an unbelieving heart is evil. So how about you? What evidence do you need? (laughs) How about the evidence outside the tomb? The stone was rolled away. How about the evidence inside the tomb? The vanished body of the Lord, the cloth laying there left behind. How about the experience inside the tomb? We looked at that last week. Mary saw two angels and they declared to her that the Lord was raised. How about the experience of those who were there outside of the tomb, like Mary meeting Jesus and worshiping him. The gospel accounts give us evidence on the inside of the tomb and on the outside of the tomb. The gospel accounts tell us about the experiences of those who witnessed these things, what they saw, what they uh, experienced, what they touched. I mean, what evidence do you need? It's not necessary to see Jesus to believe in him. Jesus, though Thomas had this blessing, Jesus appeared and, and he showed Thomas his hands and his side and his feet. He said to him, Thomas, put your finger here. Touch me and see. Put, put your hand in my side. You want to talk about evidence? You know what the text doesn't tell us? It doesn't tell us that Thomas had to touch Jesus. It doesn't tell us that Thomas actually did it, that he put his hand there or that he put his finger in the nail hole. Uh, Thomas never, I don't think, accepted the invitation. He didn't need any more evidence. Jesus said to him, don't disbelieve. Thomas, believe. 
That, that literally has been translated, stop becoming faithless and become a believer, Thomas. It's, a, it's actually a command to the one with the moral problem of unbelief. You know what Thomas said? Look at verse 28. He said this, my Lord and my God. Thomas is the first person in history who ever said about Jesus, my God. My Lord and my God. The, the, the word my is a possessive determiner. It communicates belonging to or association with. We say this of Jesus. My Lord, my God. My is, is a personal possessive pronoun. My Lord, you're the one, Jesus, to whom I belong. Jesus, you're the master. You are the one whom, to whom I give the authority to decide the direction of my life. You are Lord, my Lord. And Lord is a title that's given to God, the Messiah. My Lord, to say that is to declare that, that Jesus is the one to whom I belong and he is the one where I place my faith, my Lord. And Thomas said, my God. Speaking of Jesus' deity, spoken of the one and true God, my God, the one whom I worship. He called Jesus my God, the one who is the source. Jesus, you are the source and the sustainer of my life. You know, you have to say, when it comes to Jesus, you have to be able to say, my Lord and my God. To say that Jesus is Lord is not enough. The demons acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. But they don't serve him. You need to say, my Lord, my God. And as soon as you put my in there, it becomes belief. It's an action of faith. It's a living faith. My Lord and my God. And my is the, the possessive determinator that communicates you belong to Jesus. Thomas, all of his belief, unbelief, sorry, vanished right in that moment. And I love this. It's like an, uh, he, he worshipped. He worshipped Jesus. As, as Thomas declared, my, declared about Jesus, my Lord and my God, unbelief dissolved and he worshipped Jesus. See, worship, here's another thing about Unbelief. Worship is the cure for unbelief. Worship is the cure for unbelief. You know, with regards to doubt, intellectual problems, you need the word of God to meet your doubts and to correct them. But with regards to the issue of the heart, the correct action of unbelief is to worship, to believe. The key to overcoming unbelief is worship, which is a choice to say, Jesus... I give you the affections of my heart. The cure is not intellectual. Because unbelief, when we talk about unbelief, unbelief is a moral issue. It's a heart issue. Therefore, the solution is not intellectual. It's the heart to worship. Stop being faithless and become a believer, Thomas is told. And he worships Jesus. And faith can rise no higher than when it confesses that Jesus of Nazareth 
is my Lord and my God. And when Thomas said that, I mean, it was a miracle. It was a miracle when any human being says that. But in particular, I would say for Thomas, I mean, he was taught from the time he was a little boy, as growing up in a Jewish, Jewish home, that there was one God and he's in heaven. And for Thomas to say that to Jesus, flesh and bone in front of him, I was going to say blood, but there's no blood in Jesus' resurrected body. It's poured out on the cross. To say that to flesh and bone, to a human, my God, that's a miracle. Check out verse 29. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, you said that unless you see and unless you touch, you would never believe. Well, Jesus said this, blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. This is actually called the last and greatest beatitude in the scriptures. If you got your pen, you might want to mark that. That's one of the beatitudes right there. The last and the greatest. See, better than seeing and believing is the decision to believe though you have not seen. In the Bible, a faith in God's promise, his word is counted as righteousness. This is an action of righteousness to the Lord, an action of faith, to believe even though you haven't seen. To put your faith and trust in Jesus. See, everyone has faith. The question is, what is the object of your faith? And as Christians, we put our faith in Jesus, in his word. And those who don't believe put their faith in themselves. And I love this because Jesus just says this, look it, it's not necessary to see to believe. You're not saved by seeing, you're saved by believing in Jesus. The solution is not your eyes. The solution is that Christ has your heart. And that you would believe is the whole emphasis and the thrust of the resurrection story to tell you Jesus has made a way. Look, this morning, I just want to encourage you eight days later. Peace be with you. The peace of Jesus be with you. There, there is forgiveness for those who come to faith in Christ. And Jesus wants to breathe on you every day. The power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit of God. I mean, we're so blessed as followers of Jesus that the Spirit of God lives right in us. And so church, be not unbelieving. Worship Jesus. Give him your heart. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you that eight days later, you're still the risen Lord. You're forever the risen God, the one who has purchased us from sin and death, the one whom we put our faith in. Jesus, this morning, we thank you for your peace. Lord, I pray that your peace would be upon every heart and every mind. Jesus, this morning, we thank you for forgiveness. Jesus, this morning, we thank you for the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Lord, we pray that you would breathe afresh on us the power of the Spirit, that we might be like those disciples who go out boldly and declare and share the peace that is in you, the truth of the gospel. Jesus, I'm thankful to you this morning. We can say, my Lord and my God.
God, may your grace be upon your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.